episode four of Stockton to Malone. My name is Micah Utrecht. And I'm R.L. Stevens. Got the first podcast episode in which you are on staff at Jacobin. For sure. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. Your first task at Jacobin was to create this beautiful studio that we are working in right now. We got staples hanging off of cardboard box slash blanket hybrid. From the thrift store next door. From the thrift store next door. In a supply closet. In a supply closet, that's right. I think we're sitting on broken chairs that could like literally (laughs) collapse under us at any moment. Now, that's just the first task. Task number two, I got to convince my boy here of uh, what is quite possibly going to revolutionize left commentary. That's right, Marxist peace theater. Like so many things, you have fixated on this for so long and refused to take no for an answer. (laughs) That's right. Listen, Marxist peace theater, I know you've heard of Masterpiece Theater on PBS, but this is the revolutionary but gangsta version of it, Marxist peace theater. And the first sketch that I want to debut, Young Marx. Not Young Marx, like, you know, uh, Economic Manuscripts, Young Marx, or the new new movie about Young Marx. Not Y-O-U-N-G. No, 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 no. Young Marx, as in Y-U-N-G, because I have reimagined our boy Karl Marx as a mixtape rapper. Let me give you a little preview. Yeah, it's Young Marx in the building, you know what I'm saying? They call me Young Marx, a.k.a. Hot Carl, because I spit fire. And you know what? You know what? I'm beefing right now. I'm beefing. I'm beefing. You know why I'm beefing? Because our boy Prudhon is talking down. But clearly, Prudhon doesn't get capitalism, but he can get these hands. Fowerbox's whole shit is whack. <laughs> yeah. Poverty of Philosophy is my latest track. You know, check my mixtape. Um, <laughs> Capital Volume 1. I got Volume 2 coming out, son. You feel me? Hey, hey yo, hold up, hold up. Hey, yo, Angles, I need you to get, uh, get some Venmo studio me. time. <laughs> Venmo me. I, studio. I need you to Venmo me some dollars so I can pay these producers. Because I'm broke. You see what I'm saying? He's... A, Marx was the first struggle rapper, okay? Capital Volume 1, that sounds like uh, that sounds like a rap album. Come on. Look for our new uh, Patreon to uh, <laughs> yeah. finance the production of Young Marx. That's right. So today for the podcast, we have an interview with Eric Foreman. Eric Foreman is a labor activist in New York City with a long history of union organizing. And he wrote a piece recently for our website called Let's Get to Work which is about a history of salting, uh, getting a job in order to organize a particular workplace. And he argues, you know, in a telling of the history of that practice throughout the American labor movement's history, uh, that if we're going to revitalize the labor movement, we we got to start salting. we got to get, get back to work, uh, which is something that I have somewhat of an experience with. I uh, organized at my low-wage retail job. I talk about my experiences there. Uh, in the interview, uh, and really just changed the way that I view organizing, you know, pontificating about the left, uh, all of it. All of it goes back to this relatively short amount of time that I spent uh, as salt as a salt. And then, this isn't in the interview, but when I was listening to it, it reminded me of my experiences working at The Gap. Now, I wasn't working with a union, so my low-wage organizing experience was a bit different, um, we should mention the gap where we first had our, our first conversation oh, yeah. while you were on your That's break right. at the gap. That's right. 
So that was kind of after, that was actually after we had won the little campaign that I put together with some people. What was your campaign about? It was about on-call scheduling at The Gap. So we would not know whether we were working that day until three hours before the shift started. So I got together with some of my coworkers and a couple of organizations outside of work. And we wrote this article about it and put some pressure on the company to change that schedule, which happened. And what I learned through that was... Yeah, you know, we could be I could be an activist on the shop floor, but without like coll- real collective shop floor power, really a union, there were limitations to what we could do cuz uh, we couldn't really like enforce the policy change. We got a policy change, but we didn't really have any power. And it was all centered on me. So I didn't like know how to organize. It's not enough to just like kind of go in and just try some shit and hope it works. But that like actually organizing low wage workers takes skill and, and real commitment. And that's why I you know left there and started um, working as a staffer at Unite Here so I could learn how to build campaigns. And uh, then I left that and came here to tell you about it. <laughs> uh, for me, it was a real sobering experience to be somebody who, you know, reads lots of books, reads lots of articles, has a very finely tuned intellectual analysis of, you know, the nature of the country we live in, the economy we live in, the world we live in. And, you know, as an editor now, I spend all day, you know, finally crafting those intellectual arguments to feel like they're as sound as possible, right? And of course, I think that's important work. I wouldn't be an editor if I if I didn't think that it actually had, had real value. But uh, I also know that the way social change happens is not through those kind of finely tuned, finely crafted arguments that are, you know, ideologically, you know, airtight. It, organizing requires a lot more than that, a whole different set of skills. Trying to organize with my coworkers was a really sobering experience for me that really puts what I'm doing now into some perspective. I mean, there's really no substitute for being there and being in the same boat as your coworkers and figuring out how to convince them of that, despite how scary it is and all of that, to, to convincing them to to getting together and fight. And it, it's, it, it's really, as I said, it's a sobering experience. Uh, one that really puts in perspective a lot of the kind of bullshit that goes on on the internet, the Twitter beef and whatever. Uh, it puts it in perspective now as an editor. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is agitation. On the internet, the things that we react to online aren't actually agitational when it comes to what it takes to move politically in the real world. And that's what I learned at The Gap. At that time, this is 2014, the big discussion was around Miley Cyrus twerking, right? So there's all this chatter around it on blogs and on Facebook. But when I would talk to my coworkers about it, not be, not as like an organizing tactic, but just because I was curious what they thought. They didn't care. And frankly, neither did I. You know, I got a paycheck at The Gap for $68 over a two-week pay period. Miley Cyrus twerking was not a concern of mine. So <laughs> it didn't agitate me. That's kind of what one of the things that you learn is like what actually agitates people. It's not the intellectual arguments and the pop culture criti- critique. It's, it's something else. It's relationship. It's real life. And that's not to say that these things aren't important. It's that they're not agitational. And what it takes to actually organize and what it takes to build the power we need, one of those steps is agitation. Now, once we get power, you know, once we have groups of people moving together, of course, like the ideological and kind of the the more abstract things come into play as far as like what you use that power towards. But like when it when it comes to getting somebody on board, that's agitation and that's real life.
We've also got a small little uh, Easter egg in this episode. I had to fight all my life. I had to fight to get this Easter egg (laughs) in this interview. (laughs) I I don't know if we can keep that. (laughs) (laughs) I love me some hot (laughs) pole. No, but for real, I I put an Easter egg in the interview, and Micah and I spent like twenty minutes before we recorded this uh, intro arguing over whether it was how stupid this Easter egg is on the scale of one to ten. He says a million, I say like a thousand. So you'll know what it is when you hear it. There will be no question. We'll put a poll up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so. There's an Easter egg. We hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, We've somewhere. got references now in this episode to both a great American sitcom and Roots. <laughs> no, that's not Roots. Oh, I thought it was Roots. That's uh, that's the color purple. The color purple. <laughs> that's Oprah. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Welcome to Stockton to Malone. <laughs> now that I'm a staffer at Jacobin, this is what you mask get. off. <laughs> mask off. Fucking mask off. <laughs> Okay. All right, here's our interview. (laughs) The man's dying right now. Here's Micah's interview with Eric Foreman. In a recent piece for Jacobin, which you can read on our website, jacobinmag.com, called Let's Get to Work, Foreman makes the case for leftists to start salting again. Eric is a longtime labor activist and organizer who lives in New York City. So, Eric, let's start with the basics. What is salting? Salting is a pretty simple concept. It's basically just the idea that uh, you get a job um, with the plan to organize a union there. And this is something that has a pretty deep roots in the American left, right? Yeah, people have been salting for well over 100 years. And if you take a careful look back at most of labor's major successes in the last century, um, almost all of them uh, were driven at least in part by salts. Very important question. Do you know if the term salting comes from the fact that once you get a job to organize and win, the boss becomes very salty that you did that? Um, you know, that that sounds like as good an explanation as any. Um, so let, let's go with that. I actually... That's a very actually, bad That's a very bad leftist dad joke, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I actually have no idea where the term salting comes from. I've never been able to figure it out. But that, that sounds like as good an explanation as any, and maybe maybe funnier than most. The experience that you get on the shop floor level is unlike anything. I mean, if you, especially if you're just coming out of college and working as a staff organizer, you can hear workers' stories, but it's once until you've lived it, it's really impossible to get the kind of empathy that you get from from working in a shop. You know, my first job after college was as a retail worker uh making minimum wage at an airport near chicago and the experiences i had of being uh just constantly degraded and disrespected and struggling for money but and then when we decided to form a union uh the the level of banging my head against the wall trying to get my co-workers across racial and ethnic and linguistic lines to come together and to fight the boss um, you know, bridging people's like personal differences with each other, uh, you know, convincing people that a better world at work was actually possible. Mm-hmm. And then when we 
got to the point where we actually were organized and were confronting the boss, uh, there I've never felt so powerful and and so you know so capable of, of anything in my in my life as to when we were, you know, confronting the boss. So. Uh, all of those experiences are, you know, there's these emotional <laughs> roller coasters that go on with uh, with with organizing. It's uh, it's uh, never a dull moment, and uh, if you're not involved in uh, shop floor level work, you never get to experience the full uh, depth and breadth of that. Yeah, it's a transformative experience. I think maybe for for everybody, um, certainly for someone who goes into who decides to organize, um, but for ideally for every all, all the workers um, in that particular workplace, um, I've had yeah I could I've had many similar experiences. I I thought I, I started salting at Starbucks in 2006 and I thought I'd work there for six months. I ended up staying there for six years just because the the transformations you see that people go through um, are so. Yeah, can you talk about those stories a little bit? Because you, this is something that you yourself have done over the years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I salted in the fast food industry for about six years. So I, I start, I started working at Starbucks in the Mall of America, um, which uh, in in summer two thousand six. I got a job there because I, I needed a job. I was in college and I was working, and I figured I might as well get a job in a place where union organizing can make a difference. I didn't start the campaign there. I, I there had already been baristas in New York had started organizing a couple years before. But I was working another coffee shop job, and I figured, well, if I'm going to organize a union, I might as well try to work together with other people who are doing the same. Um, that's, you know, the whole idea, right, is like power in numbers. So I got this job in what I thought at the time was like the the core, the center of capitalism. It was sort of a Luke Skywalker strategy. It was like, all right, well, if we like unionize the core of the Death Star, then the whole thing's just going to, you know, collapse. Uh, unfortunately, that, that analysis of capitalism didn't turn out to be true. Um, but my coworkers and I did form a union at the store. Um, maybe you just didn't find the right place to, you know, launch the missiles at. Yeah, maybe maybe Auntie Anne's pretzels or something. Maybe Orange Julius is actually the core of capitalism. You know, that was maybe that was, should have been the, the target. I don't know. You got to find the blueprints. Yeah, right, right. But yeah, I mean, it was when I got a job there. I mean, it it was. I, I would say, having worked in a lot of retail jobs like before and since, exceptionally hellish um, working at the first four Starbucks in the Mall of America. You'll have like a line out the door for more than eight hours a day of tourists from all over the place wanting frappuccinos. So you're just like making, fra- I think I made like 600 beverages in one eight, eight hour shift at one point. I mean, it's an assembly line. So you've got like all the charm of like the industrial monotony of, you know, producing coffee beverages on an assembly line compared combined with all the joy of having rude customers come in and degrade you constantly plus you know your boss who's not giving people their breaks on time and is you know understaffing the store in order to make their labor budget broken equipment i mean all all kinds of nonsense plus you know we had incidences of sexual harassment from the boss uh, wage theft, uh, sort sort of <laughs> things that are typical for you know like forty million workers in this country on a day to day basis. Um, it's horrible, but um, yeah, my coworkers we 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 came together. We started meeting outside of work, talking about our problems. Um, eventually, taking action around different issues. Um, my coworkers complained to higher ups about the sexual harassment. We managed to get our boss and the wage theft managed to get our boss fired. Then there was some some pushback at a certain point where the boss tried to fire one of our coworkers 
So we organize what's called a march on the boss, which is where you get your coworkers together and you just go directly confront the boss. And we managed to stop the firing, um, which was probably the, one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced. Every boss has a color. It's a color they turn when the workers unite against them and confront <laughs> them. Um, so your job as an organizer is to find your boss's color. I've had green bosses. I've had red bosses. Um, you know, find your boss might be gray. Um, it's sort of like a, a mood ring type effect. So um, if you ever doubt that workers have power, I'd say participate in a march on the boss and you'll feel it. Um, they, they need us, uh, in fact, a lot more than we need them. Yeah, when I was working as a cashier, we had all, when we decided that we were going to go public with the union campaign, we all put on union buttons and a bunch of people were sent home from work that day for wearing the buttons. And so we, uh, there were so many people who were sent home that the uh, manager, the general manager had to go out and run the register uh, somewhere in the airport and so people who had been sent home, people who were off that day, people who uh, were on their breaks at work, were uh, we all got together uh, to confront this manager. Uh, and we had to, of course, confront him uh, as he was doing the job of the people who he had just sent <laughs> home, which was kind of amazing, standing there in his suit and tie, you know. Uh, and so this group of, I forget how many, maybe eight or nine of us, you know, march on, on the boss and... Uh, this is a guy who I had seen around work. He would come check on me in my store. I would see him in the hallway when I was punching in. And I was just, you know, I did everything I could to avoid this guy because I was, like, pretty terrified of him. Uh, he had enormous power over me and my coworkers. Mm -hmm. And, but then all of a sudden, this group of eight or nine or ten of us roll up to him. And he's doing our job. Uh, so he looks incredibly powerless all of a sudden. And uh, his color was red, and he turned uh -huh. beet red immediately. Uh, and he started doing like weird stuff, like uh, like you know, turning these giant display cases like ninety degrees to the left. And he'd be like, "I'm, I'm busy. I can't. I can't talk right now. We we, we can't talk. about what we talk about this later." And we're like, "Why are you turning that like enormous display case to the left?" And he's like, "I'm I'm clearly in the middle of some very important work. If you could just leave me alone." And so we we eventually sort of chased him out of the store, and he he's in his suit and tie, uh, like speed walking slash running through the airport as this group of workers trails behind him, and he was clearly completely terrified of us. And I don't think I have ever felt more powerful in my entire life than when I saw this guy in his suit running through the halls of, a, of an airport. It was it was a great feeling. Amazing. Yeah, that reminds me, we, we had an issue after we'd gone public with our union at, at the Starbucks, we had an issue where a coworker, uh, somebody, they, they constantly, after you form a union, they do everything they can to try to uh, disorganize the union. So uh, they transfer people, they give people promotions, they might try to fire somebody, uh, buy people off, t scare other people. Um, and then they bring in new workers who might have personal relationships with the boss or who they think they think for some reason are going to be opposed to the union. So in our case, they began just hiring only like young Christian women between the ages of like 18 and 21, thinking that if you're young and Christian and a woman that you're going to be anti-union. Turns out that's not the case. <laughs> so um, one of our coworkers who they'd hired um, this way, we found out they, the company like wasn't paying her on time. Um, she'd worked there for like almost two months and hadn't gotten a paycheck and she'd complained to HR and tried to go through all the normal, you know, procedures for, for fixing this through the company. 
when we found out, I think it was me and maybe four other workers um, were, were on the floor when we found out they hadn't paid her. And so we just on the spot decided we were going to organize a short strike. Um, so we organized, we set one of those coffee timers they have at Starbucks. If you work at Starbucks, you, you hate these. They, they, you have to brew new coffee every 10 minutes. And like, or no, it's, it's more frequent than that now. Um, and clean the lobby every 10 minutes. So there's constantly timers going off. Sometimes bosses will actually clip the timer to a worker when they go on their break and set it as if you're like, yeah, incredibly degrading. So we set a timer for 10 minutes and made a little sign at the cash register saying we were on strike um, because our coworker wasn't getting paid and, you know, told everyone who came in we were on strike, gave all the customers the phone number of the district manager. Um, Then we called the district manager and left a message and told him we were on strike. And he showed up later that day and wrote a personal check uh, to this worker for the money she was owed. So, you know, I mean, you get the bureaucratic runaround when you're, when you're an individual worker, you're going to get, get the runaround. But um, as a group, you have power. You can make them respond. That's amazing. And, of course, there are people who did things like you and me. We got low-wage jobs uh, that really, really sucked in a lot of ways. Uh, it sounds like yours sucked. Mine definitely sucked. Um, and that's one way this can be done, but there are also ways to do this in which you are not so miserable and you're not like taking a job that you hate and just being a martyr for the working class movement. I mean, this can be done in places where people might already be deciding to work. It can be done in public education as a teacher. If you get a job in a place where you think there might be a strategic way to intervene in a teacher's union or uh, any any number of uh, you know nurses or health other healthcare workers uh, uh, you know getting a job at a non-union hospital in order to help with an organizing drive there any number of uh, possibilities that don't uh, that don't involve uh, living in uh, you know absolute penury <laughs> which is how I was living at the time yeah yeah right or at least until unions and all these sectors are destroyed and you know everybody's making minimum wage until they abolish the minimum wage and then we'll be making less than that um yeah absolutely i mean i think on the left organizing work should be the norm not the exception um almost all of us unless you're a boss you're a worker and if you're a worker you probably have issues at work and the way to deal with those is to organize together with your coworkers. I mean, there's there's also right now, I think we're seeing this upsurge in worker self-organization. Um, I don't know if people, in response to Trump, there have been walkouts in um, the tech sector. There have been wildcat strikes of teachers just like last week with the women's strike, um, taxi driver strikes, the bodega strike in New York, um, and many other actions, probably most of which we don't even know about, right? Um and so there is this upsurge happening in the workplace, and the left needs to be on the front lines of that, not the sidelines. For example, many people on the left might be working in education. There's tons of rank-and-file teacher organizations you could join, um, or in healthcare. Uh, there's lots of rank-and-file organizations of nurses and healthcare workers people can join. And if there isn't an organization like that in your workplace, you can build one. Uh, you can work with groups like Labor Notes. I think even the DSA is considering offering resources to members to organize at work. Uh, the IWW has done this for a long time. Um, there's lots of lots of options. So you go through at some length the history of salting in your piece, but talk about the use of it in the old left as well as uh, the new left and, and then maybe to present day, uh, its use or non-use. Well, I think that um, at, the be- at the very beginning, at the early days of the labor movement, um, essentially 
every member was a salt. The labor movement didn't have a big bureaucracy. It didn't have a lot of paid staff. Uh, it didn't have a lot of members, uh, which in many ways is sort of the situation where we're entering now. Um, and so the way unions were organized is that workers organized them. I mean, it's sort of funny how, how simple it is. Um, and so today we might call that salting. Um, back then, I think it just meant you're a worker who believed in unions. And so when you got a job somewhere, you'd organize. Um, I think that we start to conceptualize it as salting when, when that practice begins to become more and more self-conscious. So it's obviously very hard to organize a union. It's not something that um, you know you want to start without a plan or you want to start alone. And so it makes sense if you're a worker who believes in unions to coordinate with other workers who feel the same way. Um, and when you get a job someplace, you know, can work together to to organize. Um, whether you're aiming for formal unionization or simply just building a committee to deal with the problems that always arise in any workplace. And so that was that was, I think, the culture of the labor movement up through the 19-teens and maybe into the 1920s. At that time, the labor movement didn't have a huge staff, um, and so it was driven by workers organizing themselves, um, particularly the IWW. I mean, the IWW at that time was made up of a lot of migrant workers who are traveling around the country, organizing, taking on lots of different jobs, and um, developed their own culture of struggle and culture of organization, which I think was reflected, reflected or maybe embodied by the IWW. And the IWW, of course, is the industrial workers of the world. The IWW is using it. Uh, Communist Party members used it. New left groups used it as well, right? Yeah, I think the the examples of salting people might be most familiar with are um, the projects that led to the massive strike upsurge in 1934. Listeners probably know that uh, the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935. Before 1935, for the most part, unionization was either this legal gray area uh, where employers were giving injunctions, but it wasn't necessarily illegal, or in some states it was actually illegal. A lot of states had what are called criminal syndicalism laws on the books, uh, syndicalism being unionism, which banned union organization, particularly organization in uh, radical unions like the IWW. The 1920s were uh, a, a low point for the labor movement. There was a lot of repression. It's a culturally very right-wing, right-wing era. Um, when the Depression hit in the 1930s, it, new things became possible politically because there was a cultural shift. A lot of people were suffering, obviously, because of the Depression and open to ideas of organizing, taking their own their fate into their own hands through collective action. There were many similar projects like this across the country, but um, three of the most well-known salting projects, I guess you could call them, were in Minneapolis, um, where a group of Trotskyists who were former Wobblies, former members of the, of the IWW, got jobs in trucking companies, and um, first organized a small strike in the middle of winter at a coal, a coal yard. Uh, at that time, the whole city was heated by coal. Uh, won their strike. This was one of the first strikes that anyone won in Minneapolis in that era. It was a non-union town. Uh, and then built for a massive industry-wide strike in the summer, which turned practically into a general strike, shut down the city, battles with police, battles with basically deputized kids from the suburbs, and um, won their strike um, in a settlement that was brokered partially by the federal government. There are similar stories in San Francisco where the ILWU, Longshore and Warehousemen's Union, and uh, in Toledo where workers at a uh, tire factory all, all organized and went on strike following a similar pattern. Those three strikes generated a lot of, uh, I'd say, generated the political pressure that eventually led to the passage of the National Labor Relations Act and that led to the institutionalization of the labor movement. 
most employers were still rabidly anti-union at the time. But for somebody like Roosevelt, who you know was absolutely not a socialist, despite what people what people seem to think today, who was a liberal, they saw this. They saw a need to stabilize the system, both to increase wages so that you'd be able to business would actually be able to turn a profit by selling their goods, um, and also to integrate this very violent, very autonomous, and uncontrolled class struggle uh, to take that off of the streets and bring it into courtrooms or uh, meeting rooms um, and you know, resolve, resolve labor disputes through negotiation and through the law and not through militant direct action. Because they saw that and because they knew that the organizers of these strikes were Marxists. They were revolutionary socialists. They saw these strikes as a prelude to revolution and to a worker, actual worker takeovers of these cities and of industry, maybe to create something more similar to the Soviet Union. And so the, the push that came from those three strikes is what what led to the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, it's not the uh, institutional history that most U.S. unions will tell, unfortunately. Labor leaders and a lot of people in the labor movement tell the story as if it was just some kind of benevolent gesture made by FDR uh, or the result of union lobbying. Um, it wasn't. It was the result of uh, actual uprisings. So you're talking about these strikes that happened in 1934 uh, that were near general strikes in these three cities and that radicals who had gotten jobs in order to organize had played this important role in all three of them. Can you fast forward a bit to the New Left era and talk about how New Left groups thought about salting? Yeah, so the strikes of the, the, the strikes of, of the 1930s, um, both the three that I mentioned and also the formation of the UAW through sit-down strikes, which are occupations, these led to labor movement's institutionalization and a massive increase in membership. There were strikes all through World War II. There was a massive strike wave, strike wave right after World War II. But there was also the birth of a new system of, I think we can call it a system of labor control, um, a new way that labor conflict was managed in the United States. And this was then exported across the world at the end of World War II to countries that had been conquered by the U.S. or allies, so Germany, Japan other parts of Western Europe. This system relied on a, a layer of bureaucrats, essentially, or a layer of maybe chari- more charitably, we could say a layer of professionals, um, whose job it was to administer the union and to uh, administer grievances. The goal of the government in creating the system was to ensure the smooth flow of production. And if you actually Google National Labor Relations Act and read it, and I recommend that people actually do that because it's actually pretty historically fascinating. It will say literally the purpose of this act is to ensure the smooth continued flow of production. Ironically, labor's successes in the 1930s, um, the success in achieving recognition and getting a seat at the table um, and getting the passage of legislation that legalized the labor movement, in many ways were flipped over and turned into its failure in, in, in certain terms. The entire system of labor control in the United States, of the National Labor Relations Act, and of the structures that it creates, is based on taking workers' power off the shop floor and putting it in the hands of groups of professionals, and of minimizing strike, controlling strikes, minimizing strikes, avoiding strikes if possible, and instead relying on you know collective bargaining or perhaps corporate campaigns. In the in the years after World War II, labor bureaucrats of the AFL and the CIO purged their communist members. Um, the AFL and the CIO remerged. Uh, the CIO had been a split in the 1930s that many left-wing activists uh, helped build. 
Uh, they remerged communist. And just for those who who don't know, know the history, that they're both uh, labor federations, sort of not unions, but groups of unions. Um, the AFL, right, was the more uh, traditional craft-based federation, and the CIO was one that was oriented more towards the new emergence of uh, industrial work, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so the AFL, American Federation of Labor, the, the CIO, started as a committee in the AFL in the 1930s, um, run by union leaders who thought the AFL should go out and try to organize new mass industries. Did I say it was called the Congress of Industrial Organizations? I eventually split off built these unions like the UAW and, and many others um, with the help of a lot of left-wing activists. And in many cases, what it essentially did was unite these projects that had been initiated by SALTS um, and give them additional organizational resources so that they could be successful and achieve recognition. So after World War II, it's a very reactionary era, McCarthyism. The CIO remerges with the AFL. They purge communists from leadership positions and basically get on board with the era of corporate liberalism, where instead of waging militant strikes, they're just going to rely on increasing productivity. Um, they're promised to, you know, your slice of the pie isn't going to get bigger, but the pie is going to get bigger. So your slice is also going to get bigger. That's, that's the, those are the economics behind it, which sort of worked until the 1970s and the rise of what we call neoliberalism and union busting, but it also sort of didn't. Because the whole system was premised on workers not going on strike, but instead filing a grievance or waiting until the next contract negotiation to deal with problems. And there were tons of problems. To give some examples, uh, in the UAW, there were tons of safety problems at work. And the way you were supposed to deal with these was not by stopping work if there was a safety problem, but by filing a grievance. And then the union would come around and, you know, the paperwork would take months, maybe years to be dealt with, um, and things wouldn't really get resolved. If you went on strike, the union would come, uh, the union representative would come and tell people to go back to work because their contract includes what's called a no-strike clause. Almost every single union contract in the United States contains this. Um, it guarantees there will not be strikes for the duration of the contract. In the quid pro quo of uh, union negotiation, you know, giving one thing for another, the idea is the union is giving the workers through the union are saying, we'll keep working, so we're not going to go on strike. What they get in return from the boss is better wages and working conditions, maybe some kind of procedure for dealing with problems. The system of grievances wasn't really working. It was a lot of things weren't getting resolved. And there were also serious problems with racism. All of the problems of the labor movement more deeply impacted, in the case of the UAW, African-American workers. Workers began organizing their own independent rank-and-file organizations. The most well-known of these is the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, um, which was built by black workers, mostly in the auto industry, but also in many other types of workplaces in Detroit. And they organized against the racism of the UAW hierarchy, where Black workers had all the worst and most dangerous jobs, and also racism in the broader society um, against police brutality, against inequality in, in all of its forms. And they organized wildcat strikes. So a wildcat strike uh, is an unauthorized strike, a strike that's not called by the, by the union. The LRBW is probably the best example we have from that era of an organization that advanced that kind of strategy. In the early 70s, there was also a enormous ups, an enormous explosion of uh, wildcat strikes. Um, this documented by a book called Rebel Rank and File. What, this phenomenon you see in the late 60s, early 70s, you have all these people who are being radicalized by the terrible things going on in the world, the Vietnam War and all the other ills of capitalism, racism, sexism, imperialism. 
and are going and getting jobs. Uh, in most cases, simply because that's what you have to do unless you, you happen to be a capitalist in our society. You have to go get a job. At work, they're finding that, oh, this actually really sucks working in a factory or, or wherever. And in some cases, realizing that the problems that people are facing at work are very directly tied to the big picture problems happening in the world around us. And so many of them began organizing wildcat strikes, um, which were opposed by the unions because the unions had these no-strike clauses and were invested in the system. This inspired a lot of activists who then began intentionally salting through the 1970s in what people call the turn to the working class. And so through the 1970s and to some degree into the 80s, there were many mostly Marxist groups that attempted to organize at work and salt in different ways. Unfortunately, many of those projects were not particularly successful. Um, Most were pretty short-lived. Uh, but they did learn, I think they learned a lot of useful things, and it's um, these are certainly examples that we can learn from. Well, many of the best leaders of the American labor movement today came out of that era, right? They, they were produced by some of those struggles. Very true. Um, the best and the worst. Um, Andy Stern also started out as a salt. He's the pre- was a former president of SEIU, um, a particularly terrible business unionist. So, Eric, you've gone through the history of the early 20th century, of the new left. What's your proposal for young radicals today in the 21st century? Well, Micah, I think um, <laughs> I think people should take the politics to work, um, basically. That doesn't mean, um, you know, try to get everybody to put on like a Bernie pin or whatever, whatever, you know, people are supposed to wear. It means get involved in union union organizing in your workplace. Um, Either if there's an existing organization or committee, join it. Um, If there's not, uh, find organizations that can give you training and support and learn how to organize. Because especially now where we can see the federal government is completely controlled by fascist lunatics, the only power that we really have is the power to disrupt business as usual. And there's no better way to do that than workplace organizing. So where does this strategy fit into a broader strategy for revitalizing the left or for turning the left uh, more towards the working class or what is the bigger picture here well i think i think something that many people have noticed in there's been in this huge influx of new people to the left a lot of people have noticed that those turning toward democratic socialists of america i don't want to make any assumptions but probably a large chunk of jacobin's readership are folks who maybe don't really identify themselves as workers. Maybe it's because people come from a middle-class background, uh, or maybe it's simply because, you know, nobody really likes to identify themselves as a worker. We don't often think of what we do to make money as being the core of who we are. But I think I think people should begin thinking of the workplace as a place to do politics. Now, one thing we can learn from the so-called new communist movement of the 1970s, when all these radicals went and got jobs in coal mines and steel mills and things like that, I would personally say that we don't want kids with trust funds going and getting jobs in coal mines because for a couple of reasons. One, because it's going to be challenging to connect with people who come from a dramatically different background than you do. Not to say that I think there's something to be said for ending up in a, in a place where you might not necessarily end up and learning something new about the working class experience, but it's going to be challenging to organize where in a place where you are seen as being very alien to that, to that context. Um, I think people should look at the jobs that they're thinking about getting anyway, and then think about which of these have organizing opportunities, and then take a job with the idea of organizing it, which is to say, salting. Uh, and that should just become, to be honest, I think that should be like taken for granted that that's what we do on the left. 
I mean, who are we if we're not going? If, if the left is constantly encouraging workers to join unions, then why aren't then then people on the left should be the very first people doing that? Well, the, not to mention the fact that while much a lot of people on the left are uh, you know university educated, even with you know masters or PhD degrees, there has been this well documented downward mobility uh, to the point where lots of young people are stuck in terrible minimum or other low-wage jobs uh, are, are not like making out like bandits uh, with their you know fancy college degree why wouldn't those people yeah why why instead of working a you know minimum wage barista job at a coffee shop wouldn't you get a minimum wage job where you could organize a union someplace that's strategic in the american economy yeah i think there's really two two ways you can look at it i mean there is this downward mobility of uh, people who many view as the traditional base of the left, um, people who've gone to college, which only constitutes really about a third of the U.S. population. Um, that's the, the fraction that have been to college. The So there's downward mobility there. People are getting jobs that they don't like or maybe they didn't want. Organizing at work is a way to turn that into an opportunity to create the world we want. I think there's something else, though, at play, too, which is I think that this this idea that the left is made up of, of like college kids and college graduates is actually somewhat overblown. I think that it is a problem. The left tends to be dominated ideologically by people who've gone to college because these are people who tend to have access to things like, oh, I don't know, um, tend to be people who feel most comfortable maybe writing articles. There are working class people on the left, you know, and the left needs to center and celebrate those experiences rather than just assuming that everybody in the room is like a college kid because it's just, it's, it's not true. And unfortunately, if we go around making that assumption, it, it makes it true because it becomes very alienating to people who don't come from like the middle class or upper middle class. And let's be frank, too. This idea that like every activist is secretly like a trust fund kid, that's a right wing smear. It's certainly not reality. It's less reality now than I think it ever has been. You also, when you wrote this article, had in mind uh, young people who are you know, leftists or progressive and view the labor movement as important in affecting social change, rightly. Uh, but in at least the last, you know, several years or last couple decades, most of those people have gone into staff jobs at places like unions. They've become staff organizers. And um, while that's really important. I've I've been a staff organizer myself, and it's really important work. And people make huge sacrifices in order to do those kind of jobs and really dedicate their whole lives to you know, trying to build up the labor movement. Um, you're offering here a kind of alternative to that path. Yeah, I think I think salting. It's not just um, important for individuals to think about in terms of you know, what are we going to do with our lives? It's also important that the labor movement turn towards salting again um, to fix its own problems. First, the, the first and foremost being the labor movement is, in, in terms of unions, is disappearing. Um, and that's going to get dramatically worse in the, in the years ahead. Salting is an incredibly powerful organizing strategy because the union is rooted in the workplace. Nobody knows the workplace better or is able to bring their coworkers together more effectively than people who work there. This connects to a, a second problem in the labor movement, which is often campaigns and the unions tend to be very staff-driven. So the union's power comes from workers coming together and taking action. But by definition, if a staffer does it, then that means a rank-and-filer is not doing it. Um, so th there's, there is a role for paid staff. I'm, I, I believe in that. But 
the biggest role and most important role needs to be for rank and file activists. So we need to restructure unions to create a central place for rank and file activists. I'm, to be really frank, I'm pretty sick of going to conferences about labor stuff and left stuff where everyone else is a staffer, like every other single person, or they work for an NGO. It's like, that's not what the working class is experiencing. Most people are not out there working for a union. Most workers are working for a capitalist boss. If we want to have a labor movement that is centered on working class experiences and needs, then we need to also center rank and file workers. Encouraging people to salt or maybe even without it being salting, just creating a new focus on pathways for rank and file activists to become or for rank and file members to become union activists is needed to just A, save the labor movement, and B, build the kind of labor movement we, we want. And folks who are interested in that perspective uh, should go read the classic pamphlet, The Rank and File Strategy by Kim Moody, which lays out the level of incredibly high level of bloated bureaucracy that the American labor movement has that is really unlike any labor movement anywhere else in the world. Uh, and says that the path to revitalization and, and to actually winning things for workers is through uh, a strategy at the rank-and-file level rather than you know radicals getting jobs as staff organizers. Again, not that there's anything wrong with people uh, doing that. Of course, it comes from a, a good place, and of course, uh, staff organizers play an important role, uh, but that the real kind of change that we're looking for here comes at the at the rank and file level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that nobody should become a staff union organizer without first organizing as a rank and file worker, um, just for the simple reason that how can you help other people do something when you yourself have never actually done it? I mean, there are some incredibly talented staff organizers who are very adept at that, um, even though they maybe never have participated or led a union organizing campaign in their own workplace. Um, but as a general principle, I think that the best way to learn how to do something is to do it yourself. We'll always need some level of staff, but I think it's a question of emphasis and a question of personal choices. What you do see in a lot of unions, particularly SCIU, is where instead of having their own rank and file members become staff, they hire someone who maybe just came out of college, not who not only may never have worked in the workplace that they are now organizing, but actually may never have had a job at all. That's pretty appalling to me and pretty insulting to the rank and file members of, of those unions that you would pull somebody in who has no roots in the community, no relationships, and give them this leadership position, which usually pays better and has better conditions than that of the rank and file members. Of, of the union um, rather than developing their own members. Um, that really needs to stop, that kind of thing. The path to revitalization and to actually winning things for workers is through uh, a strategy at the rank and file level rather than you know radicals getting jobs as staff organizers. Again, not that there's anything wrong with people uh, doing that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Thank you.